This is what Brooklyn sounds like. Welcome to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. I am here as I am Emily, first of all, and I am in the studio once again with Matt. Yes, I'm uh, Matthew Schneeman, second of all. <laughs> it is just you and I, Emily, in, it in is. the studio. Hey. It is. We might have Jasmine trying to call in today. Um, I'll leave her, spe- her, you know, just in case her mic's on, if she, she should choose. To have, or she should have the time to call in. But, um, but yeah, it is just you and me. I think it's the first time. It's just the two of us, maybe. Yes. Yeah, so yeah. we'll get in some some deep dives about the the origins of Emily and objection to the rule. First question: <laughs> I have been wondering this. Where where is the th- the theme song from? I have no idea. I so I actually um, long time listeners will know this. Maybe not recent listeners. I just joined earlier this year, like this calendar year, um, and I inherited so much stuff including just like traditions of how things run um an inheritance of uh capitalism and jingoism yes. to, to talk about <laughs> yeah 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 the weight of the world on my shoulders um yeah i have no idea that uh yeah yeah what, what, what song do you think would uh would best fit you and Teresa's objection to the rule oh my god what a good question um Let's put a pin in that and me and Teresa will like we'll chat and then we'll come back with a with a united front on an answer. I dare not speak for her. That's so great. <laughs> yeah. Um, but shall we? Shall we jump into the the news for the week? Yes, please. Let's shall. All right. Um, first up on the local news. Uh, so after 26 years in prison, Carlos Weeks left the Brooklyn Supreme Court finally free after the false conviction that he murdered 21-year-old Frank Davis in 1995 in Bedside, Brooklyn. The conviction was overturned after the DA learned that the key witness's testimony was not credible. The women are believed to have lied because they hoped that it would help strike a deal for a lesser sentence with another family member. This news is overwhelmingly positive, but in contrast to the Amber Geiger case, she received 10 years and weeks served 26 years wrongfully convicted, How can we even talk about justice? Uh, On the other hand, how can we even approach the topic or talk about it when in large part the response is just to compare sentences and say the system is unfair? Uh, What are some things that citizens can do to make sure these types of convictions don't happen? A lot of weighty questions there. Um, And thank you to Sarah, who is not in the studio today for some research on that. Um, Yeah, and she she brings up some really good points. about, I mean, on, you know, the, the, not just the, the convictions of, you know, for crimes being often, you know, you know, uh, asymmetrical sentencing. Yeah. Well, asymmetrical sentencing is what I'm getting to, but it's also like, you know, whether there's even a conviction at all. Mm. Um, yes. Thank you for those very apt words right there. Um, Yeah. That's a tricky one. What do you think, Matt? Um, I I have a lot of thoughts about this, mostly because I've been recently in communication with some incarcerated folks out in California, thinking mm-hmm. about doing a piece with some of them. Cool. And one of them's been away for about forty years, uh, life without parole. It's it's and it's it's just really it's hard to wrap your mind around. 
that type of punitive sentencing. Mm-hmm. Uh, another one is going to yeah. be getting out, but he's he's he got put in uh, for murder that was connected to sexual abuse that he uh, received as a child. Mm. Um, and, and there's just like it's, it's very clear the way the philosophy behind prisons uh, th- that we seem to engage in in America, this punitive mm-hmm. lock him away forever. It's like a symbolic gesture. Yeah. A bit of security theory, theater, perhaps, mm. to make Ooh, us all feel good better. Phrase, wow! <laughs> security theater, but um, it's, it's, yeah. it, it really hits me because um, I, I, I usually turn my phone off or uh, put it on silent uh, when when recording. But I'm expecting a call today mm-hmm. uh, from one of the the gentlemen that I'm, I'm working with, and if I miss a call, I can't call back. Right. right, the the the, the limited communication. I got a call yesterday, and it just got dropped because the service that uh, they have to use mm-hmm. wasn't working correctly. Mm. And just having something touch my life, you know, right. it's, it's not a, a the greatest abuse or lack of freedom for me not to be able to text someone or communicate with someone. But just like it, it really makes it new again for me. Yeah, and it's just so angry because it's like, right. oh my god. Right. Oh, how interesting. And and most of the people I've I've talked to, um, uh, they're they're guilty of murder, and but they've done their time, and we need to be able to recognize mm-hmm. uh, that these are people. Yeah, and I think that's that's a huge thing in this country is our our legal system is is like I guess you know you have to look at it. What? Why do we? put people in jail. I think that's the question, the overarching question here. Is it to keep bad people, quote unquote, bad people away from quote unquote, good people? Um, Is it to, is, or is there an idea that, you know, people can change for the better? Um, You know, is it to prevent other people from, or is, you know, is it to hold someone up as an example? Like don't do this thing because look what happens to this person when they do this thing. And I think it leans towards, the first, you know, bad people versus good people and the the last one. Um, other A lot of other countries, um, not all other countries, but, um, you know, like Scandinavian countries, European, a lot of European countries. Um, and I say that with a broad blanket without any specific details. Up, but I know, like, uh, at least, um, what's the word, from, uh, anecdotally, that the prisons there um, ha- are much, and the prison systems there are much more skewed towards um, correct, corrective. Um, or, you know, like the idea that you did this bad thing, but it doesn't need to, you, you we don't need to throw you in a trash. Heap, yeah. You know, like, for example, that the the attack, the the mass shooting that happened in I can't remember if it was Sweden. Mm, yeah. The guy uh, had that bomb on the mainland and went to the island and, yeah, yeah, and yeah. murdered a bunch of people. They don't have a life sentence for that. Right. Yeah. And. I just think, life sentence extent don't exist. Yeah, yeah our, all of our brains in America just like exploded when right. we were like, I think of myself as very progressive or, I don't know, believing in uh, forgiveness or whatever. But I was just like, I couldn't even right. understand the thought. I was like, wait, right. that's an option? Yeah, yeah. And it, it's 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 ingrained in who we are, what we are as a society, um, the legal system we have. Um, but then, of course, it's it's a inherently kind of racist system, right? Um, just not, I mean, not, it doesn't on paper, it doesn't need to be, but the way it's acted out, it's, mm. it's been racist for, uh, I would say forever. Um, just in terms of 
who decides, uh, you know, who needs to serve how much time to make up for whatever crime, blah, 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 whatever. It's um, it's misogynistic. If we look at the Brock Turner case, right, he raped a girl and I think didn't end up or served three months of prison time. Right. Like um, but in the end, they all talked about like, oh, this is going to ruin his life. And there's a lot of talk like that when you look at like a male female situation, too. Uh, or just like a sex abuse system too, especially with like a young um, white male, you know, looking at them as like, oh, but you can't, you know, you can't convict him of this crime because it's going to ruin his life. And those sorts of things are only said about a specific portion of the yeah. population. And it's like, you know what? That's not a bad thought. Right. We just need to expand it. <laughs> right. Yes, exactly. Like that needs to. Right. And that's hard. And that's also hard because you we as a society also are not even we like as indiv- as humans we hear about these crimes and we're like we're revolted and we want you know retribution but retribution versus justice you know we're just, mm. yeah it's all it's a lot to to think about um and Sarah also points out though going back that if you know the system's unfair ways we can work around that uh, or ways that we can help to fix that are voting um, and supporting places like the Legal Aid Society, um, protesting is probably a good one, too. Um, thank you, Sarah. Yeah, thank you, Sarah. And the, the voting idea is a good one. But also, this might be a weird thought. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm nervous. If, <laughs> if there, when voting is attached to how we run prison systems, mm. would it be better if there was an independent thing or would that look more like how the military, you don't like vote on mm. like generals and stuff and the military can kind of get out of hand? That's a tricky question. And but like so many yeah. voters, there are some the tough on crime Democrats, the Bill Clintons, mm-hmm. the three strikes are out. Uh, that's, I'm assuming, but I, I think it's a safe assumption that that's done for political purposes to get voted in a lot. Yeah. I mean, a lot of that tough on crime rhetoric often is. Um, yeah. And I mean, we're also living in an age of uh, for-profit prisons too. Mm. And that's the whole other category of, I don't know what, um, but shall we move on to the next story? Yes. Okay. <laughs> um, all right. So New York city has banned the hateful use of the term quote, illegal alien. Um, at the end of last month, uh, New York City issued an official ban on the use of the phrase legal alien when it is meant to be used as a form of hate speech. The city's Commission on Human Rights released a document, which is available online, um, that breaks this all down with highlights including, quote, approximately 3.2 million New York City resident- residents were born outside the United States, representing 37 percent of the city's population. Millions of immigrants have settled in New York City, and they continuously contribute in immeasurable ways to the fabric of the city. Uh, The term alien, used in many laws to refer to a, quote, non-citizen person, is a term that may carry negative connotations and dehumanize immigrants, marking them as other. The use of certain language, including illegal alien and illegals, with the intent to demean, humiliate, humiliate, or offend a person or persons, constitutes discrimination under the New York City human rights law exploiting or threatening ICE involvement to further a discriminatory discriminatory motive or to harass or intimidate employees is a violation of the New York City human rights law as well. Um, and various quotes um, all mashed together there. Um, so a couple notes. Uh, national origin is a federally protected class, but immigration status is not. 
Uh, also a reminder that a person, a human can't be illegal. Um, and the language we use is important. Um, and it's also this came on the heels of a, a New York City ice raid. A New York, not just city, a New York State ice raid. Um, yeah, so this can't be looked at without looking at our national climate, right? Mm-hmm. And what, what, what do you, when you say that, I, yeah. I almost think you're thinking of like backlash or how other people will view this move. I'm looking at it in both directions. I'm looking at it as a reaction to what's been happening. Um, and I mean, yeah, and there is certainly reactions. I, I tried Googling or not. So I, the article I found this on in Metro New York um, said there had been a tweet from NYC.gov announcing this specifically with the phrase legal alien. And then I tried to find the tweet. I think it was deleted, but I found a res- like a reply to the tweet that was some troll or someone just, you know, 18 times running the word illegal alien. Right. Like, and that's, that's very Twitter. Yeah. That's very. And if they, if they do that in the list, then you could just say, oh, it's alien illegal. <laughs> right. Excuse me. What's that? <laughs> you say it enough times. It just doesn't sound like a word anymore. <laughs> like milk. Um, milk. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, and I I thought it was interesting that um, I the fact that they deleted it, the tweet was interesting. I wonder if it was because they were getting a lot of really aggressive response, like, you know, nasty, nasty, like cr- uh, trollish responses. Um but, you know, Twitter is a, the place that the president of the United States goes to to announce, uh, use a lot of the exact rhetoric that they're, that the, um, this ban uh, is, you know, pointing at. Um, using ICE as a, you know, a harassment tool. Um, yeah. Mm. When did you learn about ICE growing up? Or I, I honestly. Because it's not brand new. It's not, I don't. Let's look that up. It's not brand new, but it's, I don't think it's, it's at least in its current existence uh, and its usage, a branch to uh, just round up just great swaths of human beings. Um, Yeah. Like I, I only, I think learned about it in that capacity within the last. Well, how about, uh, how about one, one was your first conception, Emily, of objection to the rule. Oh my gosh. Uh, (laughs) Sorry, that's my terrestrial radio. (laughs) This is my radio voice. Yeah. We haven't enough. When you were a kid, Mm -hmm. when was the first time you kind of learned about immigration? Right. So, I mean, for, I think for me, and I think maybe for a lot of um, kids growing up in this country, we, we learn about in public school how, you, you learn about how your family got here because unless you are Native American, your family got here at some point uh, one way or another. So I think for me, learning about immigration was um, very much early, you know, 20th century, late 19th century, um, Eastern European Jewish immigration to escape uh, pogroms, you know, that sort of thing. So that was um, the first time I was, you know, that's how I kind of learned about that. I think, and became aware of that. And of course, you know, um, it's, you know, we, the whole Jewish story is it's, you know, that's my lens for a lot of this stuff. Um, and yeah, it's my family came here to escape persecution. Right. And that's what the vast majority of the people, the current Mm -hmm. groups, refugees, um, immigrants trying to come here are also trying to do. Mm. And to find a better no- a life. But yeah. There's a organization, a Jewish organization that helps refugees 
And I can't remember their name or their mm-hmm. tagline because I don't remember details. But <laughs> I do remember emotions and they, they had this tagline right. that was just the most heartbreaking and beautiful thing in the uh, in World War Two during the Holocaust. Yeah. They set up a an organization to help refugees, Jewish refugees, uh, get back on their feet and like start anew. And later the organization morphed to just helping refugees in general. Mm-hmm. And their tagline was. Uh, we used to help people because they were Jewish, and now we do it because we are Jewish. Yeah, I was just like, oh, it's so, so beautiful. Much there's a lot history. of there's a lot of really beautiful Jewish phrases like that. Um, not to not to make the show all about <laughs> Judaism. Um, there's this one called Tikkun Olam, I think, and everyone's going to be mad at me if I'm wrong, but it's this idea that the world is is shattered into um, you know millions of broken pieces and it's our job to try and kind of put them back together a little bit on our, as in our lifetimes here. Um, the world's kind of, yeah, broken and, and it that all ties back to this, right. A little bit. Um, yeah, that, you know, looking out for fellow human beings and, and New York city is the city that's, you know, and, and I, I love being in a city that recognizes that, um, immigrants like bring so much to not just the city, but this country. And, you know, there are statistics that I don't know off the top of my head, but that in, um, they add to the well-being of a community and the both financially, um, you know, in measurable ways and, um, attacks on them, you know, that they're taking jobs or that they're, you know, committing crimes are just, are, you know, with with rare exceptions or, you know, just angry rhetoric and, tr- and scare tactics. Um, yeah. 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 Should we head on to our first music break here, Matt? Yes, we should. What do you have geared up for us? Well, in honor of the wacko weather we had this week where it was 90 degrees on one day and then, what, like 50 and rainy the next day. Um, this is one of my favorite songs by a really great band called X-Hex called Hot and Cold. There we go.
that was Hot and Cold by X-Hex, this really rad band of women in their 40s. are so good. Um, all right. And we're back. I'm Emily. And this is Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm here in the studio with... Matthew Schneeman. There he is. Sonic sledgehammer (laughs) slithering southward towards your silly synapses. Oh, that was some really good alliteration. (laughs) And uh, we're here with some national news stories. Matt, you want to take us away with those? Yes. Let's start off with a thrilling story about uh, stats. U.S. (laughs) unemployment at a 50-year low. U.S. unemployment drops to... A 50-year low, it dropped from 3.7 to 3.5% last September. But also, quote, the report came on the heels of a string of weak economic reports, including a plunge in manufacturing activity to more than a 10-year low in September. End quote. Part-time, and those quotes are from uh, CNN.com, part-time, more can be from one hour to 34 hours a week. So a decrease in unemployment is generally matched with an increase in part-time work. Example, people entering the workforce that people entering the counted workforce that don't want to, such as caregivers, retirees, and students. Mm. Judging the economy by hours worked opposed to unemployment gives a different picture. When viewed through the lens, through this lens, we see that while unemployment goes down, there isn't a correlation with making more money. Another lens is looking at full-time employment versus part-time employment by gender. Many more men are en- are now entering part-time work, hmm. which is kind of a weird one. But if you think about it uh, yeah. through the sexist lens, men traditionally have more of the stable money-making job, yeah. so it, w- it wouldn't be a good indicator. Yeah, that is really interesting, actually. I That's one I haven't thought of. What is one that is, I, is always good to remember is that, you know, drop in unemployment is not a rise in livable uh, wage earning. Yeah. 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 It's, yeah. You know, um, there are lots of people that work many, many hours a week and struggle to support their families. Um, right. Yeah. yeah. If you have two part-time jobs, right. unemployment, I guess you wouldn't be counted twice. But that isn't an indicator of like mm-hmm. economic stability. Right. Unless, you know, you just got it all figured out, which right. is good. I mean, working two jobs, I think it is is a cool thing. I think it's it's more healthy and natural for humans to do multiple things. Yeah. And maybe we'll get there. Uh, yeah. And that's I mean, that's a whole societal, um, you know, how how we look at, you know, people anyway, looking at jobs is the meaning of your life, blah, 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 whatever. But this specific thing. We're talking about. Um, it's true. We are getting away from uh, the nature of work is changing. The, the way we think about work is mm-hmm. changing. The hours, uh, just thinking about new schedules, paying by the work you do opposed to the hours that you're in. Mm-hmm. There's some good things happening, but I think we're also still very tethered to a yeah uh, an old school system. Yeah. And I mean, we're also in a society that, um, you know, we... There's the people, you know, people want to make as much money as possible. That is the goal. And this idea that working your, you know, it's, it's a, a, a focus and a, um, belief that more work is better, um, regardless of consequence, you know, physical or emotional consequences on individual humans, mm. you know, have you heard of 
book that came out in 1904, mm-hmm. so called The Protestant Work Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism. Oh, no, I just got scary, spooky chills down my spine, though. It's a very sounds, influential sounds work. Sounds like uh, Mr. Mr. Monopoly with money bags and a monocle <laughs> wrote that book. Um, straight up. but Which apparently he doesn't have a monocle. Did I it, imagine that? It's, it's an example of uh, what is called the Mandela effect where... People. Is that like Mr. Peanut? I'm conflating him exactly. with Mr. Peanut. I, well, that's the idea that you have the two images. Whoa. That's amazing. But yeah. also when I say monocle, people love that. That's like a very funny. Is that your tagline? Just like another monocle move? Yeah. Oh, she's, she's a hoot. She's an antiquated. She's always talking about monocles and top hats. Uh, anyway. <laughs> but um, yeah. And also... Back to the, what we were talking about with, um, you know, unemployment drop. It's it's a statistic that, you know, I'm sure Trump is going to love or like his administration is going to love throwing around. Like, look at all this good work we do. But again, it's it's this thing where it's not an indicator really of um, a sustainable living situation for it, it needs to be looked at in con- in context, that sort of mm. statistic. Um, what type of indicators would you like? Oh, I would like, you know, um the poverty level of the people working um, hours, you know, hours worked versus income versus living standard in the area they're, they're living in. Um, You know, I think those are really important factors that you need to look at. Um, Yeah. Um, And then, and then we can branch out and look at other things like commute time versus livable wage. How far away from your home do you have to go to make enough money to stay where you live. Right. And I think, you know, if to put that in context, it's like people commuting into Manhattan um, in order to be able to live two hours away, which is the nearest place they can afford to live, you know, that sort of thing. Um, Yeah. Stuff like that, I think is all Mm -hmm. important factors when you, when you think about a statistic like that. I went on to uh, Mm fortune.com to try to get a, another view on this and see how they think about it. Mm -hmm. And I found a quote that I think, I think there's, it's, it's quite revealing. Uh, the, the writing isn't as skeptical or as judgmental as, as I may be. <laughs> uh, they were talking about how the Bureau of Labor and Statistics shows that of the part-time workers, there's 22 million are considered by the BLS, I guess, Bureau of Labor. Uh, labor <laughs> Statistics, yeah. 22 million were voluntary while only 3 million were involuntary. So they were showing that like, oh, this new type of unemployment isn't as bad. And they have this quote, which is, as for why limited schedules appeal to job seekers, limited schedules mm-hmm. being part-time, despite the inevitable drop in pay and sometimes benefits that hardly need saying, full-time work, especially now that smartphones keep many people on call 24-7, mm-hmm. often cancels out time for family or side business or mm-hmm. any other major outside commitment like, and this is a great outside commitment, Training for the Olympic triathlon team. <laughs> that's Forbes quoting. That's just what they threw in there. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, and that's, you know, I, I'm someone that also found satisfaction in moving away from a normal nine to five. Cause it isn't just a nine to five, right? It's, it's, mo- there's a lot of jobs out there that you don't just clock in, clock out you're done at least these days there's there's a demand and i think that fits in with that what we're talking about with a society that values work often above most else above 
family time, above sleeping. <laughs> um, you know, you're never you're never fully clocked out. You're always on call in one way or another. Um, yeah, and that's and that's a I I we're not the only country that's like that, and and I'm sure there are other countries that are much worse. But um, there's also a lot of countries that are much better at that too. Uh, I know that France has crazy amounts more vacation time, paid vacation time than we do, um, let alone family leave time. Like that's hot button issue right now. Yeah. yeah it'd be nice if we thought about work the same way people think about like exercise. Mm. Like mm-hmm. you but, go exercise. That's good. But you don't feel compelled to just like be doing a little bit of weightlifting all the time. Well, some people do, <laughs> to be fair. <laughs> but um yeah, no, and and that's the whole that's the societal structure and the and the that's a capitalist I think of of a country founded on capitalism and religion. Mm. We that's a huge part of our yeah our society. Do your did your parents do your parents work really hard? Uh, my so yeah, I mean my mom she runs a small um, public health foundation and she she. I'm picturing I, I, that being for little kids, like they're small. Yeah, well, she is. She is four eleven, so she is small. But yeah, she and um, she works really hard, but she actually she is good at finding a balance. Um, there are times she she's not always on call, um, but she isn't really ever not at least partly working. But that's what happens also when you run something. I think to be fair, when you you're she's not yeah. You, when you're the boss, you are always at least thinking about the job, I think, at least at least in part, mm. it, you know, to make sure it sails smoothly. That sounds cool. Your mom sounds very, very interesting and caring. And oh. we, we can see the, the tendrils of that family legacy bleeding no, you're through just our heads. <laughs> What's that? Just so much, like, flattery of... Radio flattery. I'm blushing and no one can see. Oh, geez, Louise. I'm sorry. I'm, no. sorry. I'm not trying to do that. But, it's, you know, compliments are weird. People don't like, you know, accepting them. It also looks vain to accept them without saying. You could just be some glory hound just like yeah. trying to be better than everyone by making fun of capitalism. Oh, man. <laughs> I don't know if I like that better or not. Okay, um, let's move on next to story. Johnson yeah. & Johnson uh, versus Ohio. I always love how when you go against like the when uh, lawsuits get to a certain levels yeah. versus like an entire state. <laughs> yeah. like, wow. It's like, how do you the conception of the state of Ohio, <laughs> the idea of the state of Ohio. OK, Johnson and Johnson has not admitted liability. And this is a story by Sarah. Yes, Sarah. Thank you, Sarah. Again. Thank you. Has not uh, admitted liability for dangerous marketing practices of opioids, but has reached a twenty point four million dollar settlement with two Ohio counties in order to fight opioid addiction. The company maintains that its practices have been appropriate when it comes to marketing opioids, but they are prepared to help fight the epidemic as they are a care company first and foremost. Mm -hmm. According to (laughs) NPR, quote, the case involving the Ohio counties is the first federal case to be brought against pharmaceutical companies and is therefore seen as potentially setting precedent for how similar suits will be handled. Hmm. Yeah, so J and J, they um, very reluctantly um, right. assuming a little bit of responsibility out, uh, as well, a settlement. Yeah, and that that's the whole interesting. It's like the 
it's the what they're saying versus what they're doing not matching up, right? We're like, we're not responsible, but here's a lot of money. <laughs> Seems like never admitted guilt. Right. It's like a, a non or is it a non denial denial? <laughs> that sort of thing, right? Um Yeah, it's it I mean, you know, if if the goal is to get money to help, you know, fight and you know, fight the crisis and repair the damage, then mission accomplished. If it's, but if the precedent is supposed to be more, um, what's the word? Intellectual feels like the wrong word. If the idea is to, to, you know, get to the root of the issue on a psychological level, not quite there. You know what I mean? Like people accepting guilt and really figuring out what happened, um, and how we got here and everyone being on the same page as to what the truth is about that. Mm. Not quite there. Yeah, $20 million uh, does not seem to be on par with how much it costs emergency services and families. Uh, And so if this is a precedent for how other companies are going to defend themselves against accusations of uh, lying about uh, how addictive opioid medication would be then it doesn't look like we're going in the right direction right and that's exactly right they're not even they're not saying they're like oh we did fine with this with marketing them blah 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 it's like did you did you really johnson and johnson and then also i i it's not in quotes here so i'm not 100 sure if sarah said that but you know i'm I'm guessing that johnson and johnson is the ones that called themselves a care company first and foremost yes well, they're a company first and foremost <laughs> capitalism (laughs) you know they're they're thinking about their their bottom line um the vast majority of the time and you know lat lining up with helping people awesome that's great for you know when that happens but i'm sure um there's lots of numbers being crunched the vast majority of the time yeah numbers are just being crunched crunched and squatted and Multiple oh, are we tying this back to working out all the time? There is <laughs> weightlifting. <laughs> there they're always always crunching the numbers. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a it's that that's a rough one because uh, when you get to something as big as drugs, mm-hmm. healthcare, uh, the legal structure of things, I don't know. I mean, that's hard. I mean, yeah, I yeah. I mean, um, yeah, and it's it's. This the opioid crisis too is is so pervasive and it's it's so it's such a hard beast to wrangle and I think it's a good start going after manufacturers who falsely advertise drugs as less addictive than they are. Um, but then you get to the next level down, and if you're looking at it like a guilt pyramid, and you're looking at doctors who. I mean, I, I don't know if they had false information or if there was an incentive program, right? And that's that's also a question. To well, look yeah, at, the question like, is it over- even moral t- for uh, pharmaceutical companies to be able to? Oh, yeah. Um, I'm not exactly sure how that works out when they right. give away. So, yeah, I, I'm not 100 percent sure of the the where the line is legally and what what's given to doctors and incentives and things like that. But yeah, like doctors over prescribing heavy duty painkillers. Mm-hmm. Um, have you been touched by that in your life at all? You know anyone that got addicted? I, I or? do actually. I um I didn't know them while they were addicted, but I definitely know that they and they're no longer. And it was it was a brief thing too. It's nothing nothing like on this on um the horror stories that you hear. Um, but you know they they're really wary of um 
painkillers, you know, like use very sparingly, like, you know, and it's, it's one of those things too, where it's like, there are some people when you, you need a painkiller, right? Like you just had surgery or you're, you know, you got cancer or something like, it's not like it's, it's, it's not like that thing where we can just get rid of all of them necessarily. Like some people need these in just a humane level, but, um, it's, it's a very slippery slope. And also, you know, it's this thing where, you know, like, did I really need a prescription for Percocet when I got my wisdom teeth out? Right. Like, was I in that much pain? And I, I really wasn't right. Like, I think I had one, I got kind of nauseous and then I just didn't have the rest. Right. And, um, I didn't need a whole bottle of it. Right. It's like, it's that sort of, and that was, that was before the whole crisis balloon to what it is now. And at least on a, at least in a, a way that we're all talking about it. I'm sure it was already in, in the, the onset at that point, but yeah. 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 Drugs are hard. Yeah. How about you, Matt? Do you know? Uh, yeah. I've lived with some, some people in recovery, mm-hmm. um, you know, fall on, fall off the wagon. Mm. Uh, it's, uh, I've had a drinking problem, uh, know people with other addictions mm. and, and so it's, it's, it's a little close to home, yeah. you know, when your housemate is falling you know, falling down the stairs because they're intentionally ODing on their like methadone. Mm. Uh, <laughs> oh my God. That's, is that, that's the stuff you take to get off of heroin? Yeah. 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 And, and you can, if you don't, if you have too high of a level, I don't really understand why he was chasing that, but it's kind of like a weird thing. Cause it's not great. Methadone is, right. well, you know, that's chasing the high, right? That's yeah. But the high what, isn't that great. Cause it's, I I don't I shouldn't speak to it because I don't know it a lot. Right. <laughs> Talking about a feeling that we you've never felt, but yeah, no. That, I mean, that's like I mean, not also not being an expert on addiction, clearly, but yeah, like a lot of it is that first high and constantly chasing it and never really reaching it because you know there's tolerance levels that adjust and things like that, and um, but it's a really dangerous and slippery slope. Yeah. Yeah. Very scary thing. Yeah. Anyone's going through that. Yeah. There um, are many different roads to recovery. And when, many resources out there should you need help. Um, yeah, some people get spooked about like AA or NA because they think mm-hmm. you have to become like a Christian or something. <laughs> well, they do. There are based in biblical in Christian. Oh, yeah. AA, yeah. Little Bob and Bill. Uh, <laughs> but it's, it's moved away from yeah. God to a higher power. And then a higher power doesn't have to be a deity. Uh, it's just like. Mm-hmm. However, you perceive um, something like greater than yourself. Yeah, yeah. some heavy stuff here. Um, shall, shall, well, thank you for sharing that, Matt. Um, some really deep stuff. Um, shall we move to a little a little breather? Let's listen to some uh, a band from my home state, my oh. hometown, Husker Du. Where's your hometown? Um, Minneapolis. Hell yeah, the Minneapolis. Yes, the teen. This uh, my brother said. Oh, you moved from the small apple to the big apple. <laughs> it's adorable. <laughs> anyway, this is a song called "Terms of Psychic Warfare," which seems a little bit apt. Maybe uh, here we go. Jumping off the roof to the first 
We are back on Radio Free Brooklyn. This is your Sunday news hour, Objection to the Rule. That was just uh, Terms of Psychic Warfare by Husker Du. And I am Emily. And I'm Matthew. Yes, he is. And we are back with a little bit of world news for you. Uh, Matt, you want to take us away with a very interesting story, I might add. Yes, yes. I didn't know anything about it. Um, just go to the good old bbc.com and click on world news and see what's happening. Because even though it seems like we're in the center of the world and the only thing that is occurring <laughs> is what's happening with that big uh, inverted oh. Taco Bell present. I mean, that's an insult to Taco Bell. Uh, <laughs> there are other things going on, uh, such as in Jakarta, Indonesia, methanol, from bootleg alcohol is poisoning people. What is methanol and why is it a problem? Quote, methanol is produced during the distillation process to make alcohol, while commercial manufacturers will remove it. Unscrupulous backyard brewers may fail to do so or may even add more in the mistaken belief that it makes the drink more potent. End quote. It's unfortunately taboo to talk about. Uh, it's unfortunately to, to talk about alcohol in some of these countries, and but it is a problem, especially the alcohol poisoning. One hundred and fifty dead, most of them from on a tea plantation. Ugh, sorry, <laughs> one hundred and fifty of these tea plantation workers in India's Assam state had all died in one mass poisoning, and many more were sickened uh, and blinded by consuming. It's alcohol with uh, methanol in it. It occurs in many countries, Indonesia, India, Iran, uh, Libya. The problem is not just lack of regulation, enforcement, and public taboo, but also medical professionals, professionals aren't always trained in how to deal with it. Much of the taboo for this comes from the shame in drinking alcohol. Highly Muslim countries like Indonesia culturally look down on alcohol or they outright ban it. This taboo lowers the response to dealing with poisoned alcohol. Ironically, ethanol present in above-board alcohol uh, can act as an antidote and stave off the effects for a while. However, if alcohol itself is taboo or outlawed, many people will uh, voluntarily refuse this treatment. Wowie. So, Rough stuff. Um Various stuff. It, it reminded me of I read some book that was set in the uh, like during Prohibition. The Elephant Water book. Well, I think it was. Yeah, but yeah, exactly. That was exactly Water my thoughts. Elephants? Water for elephants. Yep, that yeah, was okay. exactly what I was thinking when I was reading this research. Yeah, because there's a whole thing with. Um, I think that was the first time I learned about um, that that was an issue at all. Because you know why would I think about like alcohol in the 30s? But yeah, that. Um, Poison, poisonous bootleg alcohol just blinding people. Uh, yeah. yeah. And that one I think was strange as well because this sounds like a conspiracy theory. It just sounds outrageous. But I thought I remember reading something that the government would intentionally. Mm, that does sound very conspiracy theory yeah, But um, you mean during prohibition? Yeah. Because I, I think especially, well, no, I don't know. It's not really needed. Right. It seems it seems a bit aggressive. <laughs> but if you think that we're living in strange times now, just yeah. remember that for, I think, was it 17 years? Something like that. Yeah, prohibition yeah. went on for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. And kind of, dis- I, and yeah, 
was I, I always forget the year it was brought back because it always seemed to just not really it just kind of happened and it was it was slowly like no one was really it's like glamorized now <laughs> yeah yeah speakeasies yeah but yeah um but yeah um this is an interesting twist on the I mean the the United States prohibition was the whole temperance movement um, that did have religious origins but not explicitly because alcohol is banned in Christianity more like bad behavior is just like how you know tisk tisk um what we're looking at now in the story you you researched is um muslim countries that ban alcohol cuz alcohol is explicitly banned in islam um which is a really interesting you know it's a it's a double it's it's so in the U.S. There, you know people just kind of a whole culture around drinking illegally, and bootlegging, and gangsters built up around it because it was it was the government's ban, and that's kind of where it ended. Up the vast majority of people were like, whatever. Like like it shows the ineffectiveness, the inefficacy of yes, of yes, trying to legislate morality. Yeah, on that level, yes. And then, but here we have it. There's the ban. There's the the governmental ban, but then also the population itself has a whole set a other set of taboos around it yeah there, there was reports of uh everyone you know people would do some reporting and i was like have you heard about this it's getting poisoned by drinking tainted bootleg alcohol and it's like, oh yeah of course i know like my cousin or my friend blah 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 wow uh, but nobody would admit to it yeah because it's 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 uh yeah it's, it's quite embarrassing and uh it looked looked down on yeah it's interesting i am um, i see we're a bit short on time so i might bump ahead to the next world story because I, it is. I think you're right. We do spend so much time looking at local and national. We often skip over some interesting international stuff. Um, all right. So uh, we have a story about the tango in Argentina. Um, a group of loosely connected activists in Argentina known as the tango feminist movement is working to reshape acceptable gender roles in the tango, the historic and dramatic Argentinian dance. The dance traditionally has rigid roles for men and women, with men leading and women waiting their turn, and it can be an environment that incubates sexual harassment. Uh, a member of the movement, uh, the feminist movement, Victoria Betia, uh, pardon my pronunciation, quoted to the New York Times, uh, Tango is a reflection of what is happening in our culture, and for a long time, our culture has allowed men to touch you when they want to, and if you complain, you're dismissed as crazy. Uh, this movement is opening up space for women to lead and for same-sex couples to switch between leading and following, um, which is really cool, I think. Um, yeah, the whole thing's really interesting. And they're, of course, you know, staunch traditionalists um, that are, you know, said this whole thing is stupid. You know, it's men leading, women following. That's the way it needs to be. Um, and... I think, you know, it's interesting to look at this in context of a lot of what's happening around the world, clearly. Um, but in the U.S. too, you know, all these movements to take down Confederate um, monuments and to change the names of, you know, dorms because the, the previous name was a slave owner. Um, and I think it's an interesting just cycle, like philosophical question of where we draw the line between preserving history and not trying to rewrite history um, while also breaking with toxic traditions that we don't believe in anymore. Um, where do we draw that line? And is there room for both? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's it, it's funny that we think that there ever was a time when things were just like... <laughs> right. You know, it was like, this is how it was. But at that time, everything was always uh, in in 
always moving. So you spoke yeah. of the Confederacy. There's the whole Greek revival movement plantations mm-hmm. that are, have those columns and mm-hmm. stuff. And like they were imitating the Greeks because we have this kind of yeah. uh, weird Western classical. Yeah. Classicism. Yeah. And them, you know, you go back to ancient Greece and you're going to see people, um, some like philosophers, like cut off their beards to break from tradition because like that would mean, uh, and they were considered crazy. And so right, it's, yeah. there never really was a time when like a, a single source yeah. <laughs> for our traditions or whatnot. Yeah. I mean, if we wanted to do that, then for like Christmas trees, we'd, we'd get those small trees and we'd put them on a table, but that's, and then, because that's how it was in Germany where the Christmas tree uh, thing comes from. But that was actually a reference to like the pagan, which yeah. is like a different version. We yeah. just keep going backwards. And yeah. It's right. cool. So it is, that is really cool. Yeah. And I guess I think, yeah, that's really cool. I guess it's, it's, you know, that it's a tough balancing act to have room for both, you know, not forgetting history because you're doomed to repeat it, blah, blah, blah. While also, saying what we don't have to hold this up as the end all and be all just because this is currently what exists and what has existed for decades or a couple of centuries or whatever. Mm. Um, yeah. And about the music's changing too, the the way tango is performed and recorded. I think I heard one, I'm not sure if it was mm-hmm. tango, but it's this popular artist that is dope because it's like electronic, but still like has like a, a beat that's completely different than what hip hop normally is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. So, should we do the run through the happy stuff? Yeah, let's run through the happy stuff. The great news. Yeah, this is a good news story researched by Jasmine. Matt, would you like to, Jasmine, who could not join us today, unfortunately? Yes. Uh, Mirrors versus Window. Uh, Lupita Youngo recently wrote and published her first children's book called, and I didn't look this up, uh, the Pronunciation. Sui? Yeah, I don't know either. Solwi. Maybe so we the past uh, this past week, the actress who is probably best known for her roles in 12 Years a Slave, Black Panther and us wrote a heartful Instagram caption explaining why she felt this book was necessary. She posted a picture of herself as a five year old. And she said that at that age, she had many windows, meaning children's books filled with pictures of kids who looked nothing like her, but no mirrors. The children's book featuring people with her same skin tone. The titular character in her book is the darkest person in her family and in her school and wants to feel bright and beautiful like her mother and sister. The brightly illustrated book is meant to teach children about colorism, self-esteem, and finding their own unique beauty. The book is available on October 15th, but can be pre-ordered through Amazon and Simon & Schuster. And Jasmine says that, her copy is on her way. Woo-hoo. That's great. Um, and she is a wonderful uh, actor. I just was so enchanted in Us. I thought that was mm-hmm. absolutely terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> Beautiful movie. She's very talented. Kind of bummed that people didn't freak out. I mean, I knew it wouldn't get the same reception as uh, Get Out, but yeah. I thought it was like a really like deep um, like palette of just like, I don't know. I just thought it was <laughs> yeah. like a beautiful yeah. Uh, yeah, it is. And it's also an, another filmmaker who is expanding the representation that people get to see um, on screen, which is great. Yeah, I think. And Jasmine asked a really cool question here, which is, do you remember the first time you felt seen in a kid's book? Um, and I 
you know, when lucky enough to be white, you know, so there's a lot of representation I grew up seeing of myself. Um, and then, you know, I actually was able to go to Hebrew school and saw a lot of books about little Jewish girls. So I'm pretty lucky in that stance. Um, and I think, I think everyone, you know, you don't, you can't be what you can't see. Um, and it's hard to conceptualize yourself in the larger context if you don't see it anywhere. You see yourself anywhere. So it's really cool. It's a very cool story, Jasmine. Thank you, wherever you are. Thank well, you, Jasmine. We'll be back in next week. Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, start wrap, winding down the show. Matt, do you have any last thoughts before I do some, would you like to do the on-air read, Matt? Yes. Matt's going to do our on-air read. Um, yeah, go ahead, Matt. Yes. After more than a year of dreaming, researching, experimenting, late night conference calls and early Saturday morning meetings, the me team is happy and proud to present to you the me bottle. This double insulated, reusable stainless steel bottle disinfects water in a 60 second cycle utilizing UVC LED technology and is 99.99% effective against E. coli. A signal charge via micro USB lasts up to 30 days, and the bright LED display lets you know when the water is ready to drink. Join us in bringing clean water to all. Raise your bottle and drink to you and me. Find out more at mebottle.com. Yay, Matt. That was our sponsor. Thank you, Mebottle. Mebottle.com. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, all right. You've been listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. You can catch all our shows on RadioFreeBrooklyn.org or on the Radio Free Brooklyn app available on iPhone and Android. Um, yeah, we're a nonprofit, um, 501c3 charitable organization. Um, so all your donations would be so wonderful. Um, yeah, we'll be back next week uh, with some more local, national, and world news. And I'm actually going to play us out with a little bit of music. Um, the last song of the day is by a Brazilian Portuguese band called, uh, Os Mutantes, which means the mutants called Panis et Circenses. And I'm probably butchering the pronunciation. (laughs) I can only imagine. Well, butchers have a use. Yeah. All right. Cool. You're serving it up. Yeah, baby. Uh, all right. We'll see you next week. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye.
Yeah. 